This is a CBC Podcast. Canada's relationship with China was already in pretty rough shape when last year a new problem reared its head. Tonight, election meddling allegations against China are getting urgent new attention. The investigation by the Globe and Mail is stoking fresh tensions between Beijing and Ottawa. You're talking about influencing at the federal level potential elected officials. It's about as serious a thing as it gets. Today, the woman with the job of raising concerns about foreign interference with China's government. Canada's ambassador to China, Jennifer May, on whether this month's public hearings into election meddling will make tensions worse. I'm Catherine Cullen. Also this week on The House, he is back and looking for vengeance, what the prospect of another Trump presidency could mean for Canada. And frigid temperatures set off a fresh political battle over the power grid. Is nuclear the key to Canada's energy future? We'll dig into the debate. But we begin with Canada's ambassador to China. The House is now in session. We're just days away from public hearings into foreign interference. The commission was set up to look at how actors like China tried to meddle in the last two federal elections. Those concerns came on top of a host of other problems in the Canada-China relationship. One person trying to manage it all is Jennifer May. She's Canada's ambassador to China. Ambassador May, welcome to the House. Thank you very much. So we're about to kick off these public hearings into foreign interference, and the Chinese government's attempts to interfere in Canadian elections are likely to be in the spotlight for what could be months. How much do you think all of this scrutiny is going to tick off China? Well, I think the fact that we're very concerned about it, the fact that we're looking into it in a very holistic and whole-of-country way, the fact that there's so many different aspects that are coming to light, whether it's malicious cyber activities, disinformation, intimidation and harassment, the threats to our economic security, overseas police stations, all of this, um, I think there's a reality that this is going to be something that is going to be deeply uncomfortable for the Chinese government. But that's, I think it's important for us to be able to work through all of this um, for us as a society and to really be able to come to grips with what this all means. That in order for us to be able to have a constructive relationship with China going ahead, it has to be based on an understanding of where we are starting from and, uh, and really of how China is, ex- is exercising its growing influence in the world. You are one of the people who actually has to raise concerns about the kinds of things that you were just listing with China. What are those conversations like? Well, I can assure you that they're difficult. You know, we're firm and resolute and and quite clear-eyed in terms of what we're raising. And the Chinese uh, officials with whom I'm raising this, with whom my colleagues are raising this, with whom people in Ottawa are raising this, we get uh, pretty firm pushback from from the Chinese side as well. So, you know, these are open, uh, they're candid uh, discussions that we bring forward. And, uh, you know, it's it, these are tough discussions, but that's uh, that's an important part of diplomacy is to be able to have tough discussions. Is there any doubt in your mind that China's government will attempt to interfere with future Canadian elections? I think what the most important thing is for us to try to be resilient, to be able to push back and to be able to make sure that we've got strong, robust democratic systems and processes so that whether there's a threat from anywhere, uh, that we're ready to withstand it. And the Canadian society has the tools and the understandings to be able to process any kinds of uh, attempts to interfere in our processes from anywhere. I, I take your point, but is it reasonable to expect more interference from China given the track record? Well, I think this is one of the things we'll be seeing through the uh, foreign interference public inquiries. Where are the threats? How are they coming? This is a changing and evolving space. And so I just think the important thing is for us to be looking at how are we prepared to deal with threats from anywhere at any time. When it comes to foreign interference, it is, of course, not just about democracy. The head of CSIS and Canada's Five Eyes partners took the extraordinary step last year of warning publicly about China's theft of cutting-edge research and technology. Help us understand what the risk is from Canada's perspective there. So I think the, the risk at, the, at its core is, are we developing new technologies, new research that is going to be used for the good of all of the world, that is part of that open research ethos that uh, universities and researchers foster, 
when a company develops its own really leading edge technology, are they going to be able to protect it and profit from it as is appropriate? Or are these areas that we're going to be finding that it's used against us, whether it's in an economic sphere, whether it's in a military or security sphere? And so that's really the importance is about trying to make sure that when we're developing cutting-edge research that either has a strong economic interest or that has a very strong national security interest, that we're able to protect it in the appropriate ways. Now, the government did announce this week restrictions around the funding of sensitive technology and research at Canadian universities, including releasing a list of foreign institutions in China, as well as Russia and Iran, that the government says Canadians should steer clear of if they're conducting research in cutting-edge areas like AI or robotics. I wonder if you have any concerns about retaliation from China on this. Well, I think the starting point is to understand that we have now made a very public list. It's very clear and transparent, uh, not just for our own Canadian researchers, which is the number one audience, but also for uh, Chinese partners, that these are the areas and institutions that we say we're going to steer clear of. But the Chinese also have their no-go zones. They also have their approaches to this. They have a very strong national security lens. The difference is that it's not transparent and open. So I think it's useful to understand that we're not operating in a vacuum here. We're not the only country that is doing this. But I think the really important thing is that for um, everybody on both sides uh, of these processes, I'm looking at it obviously from a China-Canada, but also Iran or Russia, that everybody understands and it makes it easy to avoid misunderstandings or people wasting time and efforts on developing partnerships, ideas that aren't going to go anywhere in the end because we have valid national security concerns. We've heard about Chinese investment in critical minerals in Canada's north. Um, This despite very strict federal regulations around state-owned actors investing in Canada's natural resources. How often does investing in Canada's north, investing in Canada's resources come up in your conversations with officials in China? It doesn't come up very often, actually. I think the Chinese uh, side understands that we are taking an increased look at security, that uh, the uh, Investment Canada Act used to only look at whether there was an economic benefit to Canada. Now there is a second layer of review on it, whether there's a national security concern that we have. Again, as with research, China has always had areas where um, that foreign investors are not allowed in. They understand that there's a security overlay. And I think when I have these conversations, they're looking for transparency. They're looking for an understanding of where is Chinese investment going to be welcome and where is it going to be less welcome. And I think what we're seeing is through a number of these decisions and legislation um, and policies that there's an increased clarity that's coming up. But I actually, this has not been an area of focus in conversations here. Okay, I want to move on to another topic that's been in the news. China is upset with the newly elected president of Taiwan, who the government sees as a separatist. They've warned anyone who wants to pursue independence will be severely punished. How real is the risk of China trying to make an incursion into Taiwan's territory? I think we have to be aware at all times that this is a delicate balance, uh, that uh, while China may not like the outcome of the elections, certainly conversations that I've had here recognizes that these have been democratic elections that have been taken place in accordance with Taiwanese law. So I think that's a really good starting point in terms of that, you know, that the Taiwanese elections were a valid process, even in Chinese eyes. I think that for all of us, uh, the important goal at this point is to make sure that we are maintaining the status quo, which is a very peaceful status quo, not to take any actions that would uh, increase the temperature in a, in a sensitive area. So we're continuing to have conversations with China about exactly that, underlining to them that we maintain our one China policy and that uh, our engagement with Taiwan is on the basis of people to people and economic and cultural exchanges and doing what we can to help maintain the security of, the, of that region but also to be trying to keep the temperature down. And yet in that context, China expressed this week that it's upset with Canada for congratulating the people of Taiwan on the election. What's your response? 
that we always have been congratulating the people of Taiwan on holding elections, that we don't uh, engage in terms of the results, and that this is an important uh, process that we support, and that our, our engagement with Taiwan hasn't changed as a result of as who wins the election. So we continue with our One China policy and continue with the same types of exchanges. I want to move on to something we've talked a lot about on this program, which is the opioid crisis. We've learned Canada has become a manufacturer and an exporter of fentanyl. And part of that is because precursor chemicals are coming into Canada from places like China. How willing is China to work with Canada to stop that? You know, that's, the, the scourge is incredible and the Chinese side recognizes it, that, that, that they understand that we're facing an incredible crisis that's affecting individuals, families, communities. Um, so there's, you know, we have conversations with them about this and there have been actually actions on the Chinese side to respond to these international requests. And so uh, a couple of years ago, China put fentanyl on the schedule of uh, controlled substances and so there is action that's being taken place. The, the problem, and I think your program has laid it out extremely well, is that this is a really, really complicated area that moved from actual fentanyl now to the precursors, the chemicals that are used to uh, create fentanyl. And those have a lot of legitimate usages. So the types of conversations that are being held now are really about how can we get at this ever-changing problem and how can we work together so I'm, you know, it's uh, China is engaging with on, us on this. So that's a good news story. The U.S. sanctioned some Chinese companies, but it, you're talking about working together. Would you suggest that sanctioning is not the way Canada should go? I'm talking about working with uh, the Chinese government on fentanyl. I think there's different areas, different spheres of activity that we have with China. And I think it's important to make sure that we're pressing ahead on those areas where there is momentum and there are positive outcomes. And at the same time, that where there are uh, grave issues, that we take the appropriate actions. So it's, you know, basically we can't have a, a one-size-fits-all for as big and complicated a relationship as China. We have to be trying to pursue where there are opportunities and, and recognizing where there are challenges. I just want to make sure I understand here. Where Where is the place that you think we might, uh, we're most likely to see some movement, some improvement then on this? Well, you know, I think we're in early days of conversations about next steps. RCMP is engaged. We have a liaison officer on the ground here. We have Mexico and the United States also engaged. So I think there's a lot of traction for taking a, an international approach to this. And that's a really positive development that I've been seeing in the last, uh, in the last uh, few months. That, that's a really interesting note to come to the end of our conversation on, because what I want to ask you in closing is, as you are well aware, and so many Canadians are well aware, I mean, the relationship with China hit such a low point with the two Michaels, and obviously the uh, situation around foreign interference has added further strain. At this moment, do you see signs that the relationship is improving? I think there's lots of areas that uh, are, uh, you know, zones of improvement. Our foreign ministers, Minister Jolie, Foreign Minister Wang Yi, had a conversation last week that, in fact, was looking at what are some of those pragmatic, constructive areas that we can engage on. And we do have an agenda looking forward on issues ranging from fentanyl, as we've just been discussing, but also other broader areas of global public health, looking at uh, the environment and climate change, also uh, economic cooperation, as we discussed before. So there, there are areas that we can and will continue to work on. And, uh, you know, I see, I do see positive movements. It's not going to be a complete, uh, you know, full steam ahead and uh, all positive. But, you know, just because we have setbacks in some areas doesn't mean that we can't pursue positive areas of cooperation in other areas. I was going to say, I, I know you've been asked before whether you would call China an adversary. I, I'd like to, in closing, kind of flip that on its head, given what you just said. Can Canada think of China in some ways at the same time that we're grappling with these questions about foreign interference as something of an ally? I think we have to be sophisticated about it, that I think if we try to categorize China as being only one thing all the time, we're going to miss opportunities. By the same token, if we try to portray China as being only uh, a positive story, we're going to miss some of the defensive areas that we need to be protecting ourselves. So it's uh, it's a complicated dance partner, and anybody who dances knows that sometimes you're moving forwards and sometimes you're moving backwards, and other times you're spinning around. And so that's mm -hmm. how I see kind of our dance with China. Ambassador, I really appreciate your time today. 
Thank you very much. Jennifer May is Canada's ambassador to China. Ça n'a pas été facile la première fois, ça je vous le dis. Et s'il y a une deuxième fois, euh, ce ne sera pas facile non plus. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said this week, in French, obviously, it wasn't easy the first time working with the Trump administration, and if there's a second time, it won't be easy either. Trump's dominant win in the Iowa caucuses makes the possibility of another Trump presidency that much closer. What does it mean for Canada, our economy, our alliances, our own politics? Two experts in cross-border relations join me. Laura Dawson has long focused on Canada-U.S. trade and is now the executive director at the Future Borders Coalition. Rob Goodman is a former congressional staffer who is now an assistant professor at Toronto Metropolitan University and the author of Not Here, Why American Democracy is Eroding and How Canada Can Protect Itself. Welcome to the house, do you both. Thank you very much. much. Trump says he won't be a dictator except on day one. What should that tell us about how a potential Trump win this time might look different than last time, Rob? Well, I think one thing it should tell us is that he's being very clear and very upfront about what his intentions would be if he were in power. Uh, He's used the word dictator. He's used the word retribution. He said immigrants are poisoning the blood of our country. Uh, That's not an exaggeration. That's pretty much a direct quote. So I think this is all stuff that is getting very clearly into authoritarian territory, into fascist territory, into far-right territory. And I think that one thing that Canadian politicians on all sides uh, of the political spectrum are going to have to grapple with is is what does it mean to live next to a neighbor whose head of government and head of state is not just engaging – in fascist or borderline fascist rhetoric, but is taking the policy steps to back it up. Such as? Well, such as I think we can look at family separation, the policy that that Republicans are calling to bring back at the border, such as the policy of of weaponizing the Department of Justice against his uh, political enemies, you know, such as the possibility of uh, granting blanket immunity to people who would engage in uh, crimes that are directed towards subverting democracy. He started referring to the um, participants in the January 6th insurrection as hostages. And I think that gives a real signal that it's going to be, in a lot of senses, open season for the far right in America. Laura, Rob has set the table for what the picture in the United States might look like. We want to focus in this conversation on the implications for Canada. What policy area, trade, immigration, defense, do you believe is a place where Canada would be most vulnerable to another Trump administration? I would say all of the above. Uh, Canada Mm. is relatively easy to criticize, to make pot shots at on matters of trade, on matters of military contribution, etc. A lot of these pot shots aren't based in fact, they're throwaway lines, but while it takes only 20 seconds, 30 seconds for a politician to say them, it would take someone, you know, 25 minutes to give a factual rebuttal, and nobody's got that kind of time. So we expect that the usual suspects are going to be uh, back in the crosshairs, and that would be Canadians as unfair traders. And the example that Donald Trump will use there will start with uh, with dairy, but go right through other supply chains, probably, you know, taking a look at disrupting manufacturing supply chains, including some very important elements in our automotive supply chain. Pretty certain that there will be shots taken at Canada for being a slacker in its military contributions and contributions to NATO. And while Canada can provide uh, rebuttal about how we cooperate in so many operational areas and mission areas, again, that stuff takes a long time to say, and it doesn't play as well in political sloganeering. Unfortunately, when Canada is mentioned at all in the sort of mega circles, uh, the first thing that comes up in that community is socialist. To hardline Trump supporters, Canada is uh, no better than Venezuela and uh, not quite as interesting. So when they, <laughs> they, they dismiss Canada as being a bunch of socialists, it makes it very hard for Canadians and Canadian business to continue to make the case for the existential importance of Canada as an economic and security partner for the U.S. Let me push back a little bit on this. Some people may sort of look in the rearview mirror, Laura, and, and think about the last time Trump was in power, and they'll go, Yeah, it was a rocky ride. We spent a lot of time talking about NAFTA or KUZMA, if folks even remember the new acronym. You know, he shook things up with NATO. But at the end of the day, did it really change that much for Canada? We came out relatively unscathed. What do you make of that argument? Uh, I I push back on that because I think Trump 
two is Trump won on steroids. The thing that saved us in the first time around was really uh, Donald Trump's inexperience and the fact that he surrounded himself with relatively moderate Republicans, folks that, you know, we called the adult supervision. Those folks were able to tap Trump on the shoulders and say, and identify the areas where hurting Canada would hurt the United States. Now we know that Trump is preparing to clear the decks entirely. Those moderate Republicans are gone. There is no more Reagan or Bush free trade uh, internationalist Republicans. Those folks are, are, are gone from the picture. It is only the most dogmatic America first, America only supporters that surround the president. And if you look at the uh, the Heritage Foundation lists that are being put out, the the policy platforms, they're they're significant, they're they're damaging, and we can expect right off the bat that 10% universal tariff that Trump intends to oppose, not just on other countries, but on Canada as well. Rob, I'd like to ask you about NATO in particular, because again, when we look at the different circumstances, obviously Trump was threatening to pull out of the military alliance last time around, giving Canada in particular, but a lot of countries grief about not spending more on the military. But of course, what's changed so dramatically is the global picture, these two massive conflicts, one in the Middle East and then Russia's full-scale war on Ukraine. And that one, of course, one that really implicates NATO. What are your reflections about um, what a potential Trump re-election would mean for Canada and NATO? Well, I think what's really important to bear in mind is that Canada's security picture, especially since the end of World War II, has really been premised on the idea of American leadership, uh, on the idea of Canadian membership in NATO and more broadly in in what's often called, and with some exaggeration, uh, the rules-based international order that was in many ways designed and led by the U.S. World War II onward. All these things are, I think, part of the guiding assumptions of of the Canadian national security establishment. But if it were to be the case that that, that there was a president in power in the U.S. who was actively hostile to NATO, which which I don't think we've really seen, what that means is a lot of Canada's assumptions about what's going to keep it safe, uh, what's going to undergird its security are really going to have to be questioned in a really short amount of time. And I I think you're really correct to zero in on the way that uh, the Russia-Ukraine war in particular is a tremendous wrinkle in this. Uh, because it's not simply the case that Trump is skeptical or, or critical of NATO and is threatened to pull out of NATO. It's that he's doing this at a time when, when NATO is actively engaged in this conflict and is, of course, actively supporting Ukraine in its attempt to, to repel Russian aggression. So I think one thing that Trump can draw on is the possibility that Western publics, and, and especially in this case, the American public, are becoming fatigued with paying for that war effort. And then if he can bundle that successfully into a broader case against NATO... I think that's something that he has going into this election that he probably didn't have in the same way as a much more abstract issue the last couple of times he ran for office. Laura, let's talk about how Canada could deal with, I mean, there's a lot of fronts we're talking about here, but there there were approaches last time, right? Team Canada, cross-partisan, you know, union leaders, business leaders, you name it. Canada found tools to try to address uh, the previous Trump presidency. Can you give me some examples of what Canada could do this time around? Yeah, that, that's exactly right, Catherine. That sort of cross-border charm offensive is something that is absolutely necessary. And it works for either situation, whether it's a Biden presidency or a Trump presidency. We really need to remind Americans of the importance of, of Canada for security and for economics. But you can't do it in Washington. There's an old saying that says, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. The real areas of power and influence are out in the regions where we identify places where Canada is investing, where Canadians are creating jobs, where Canadians are supplying some commodity that is essential in that region. And now I'm thinking about energy, I'm thinking about agriculture, I'm thinking of financial services. And then we get provincial premiers, mayors, business leaders into these areas, uh, into the the Miamis and the Detroits and the New Yorks and the Atlantis to catch the legislators and the business leaders where they live because there's a much different perspective if you can link up that economic contribution at the local level to a uh, congressional political interest. Doing that in Washington has much less effect. So we got to get our folks out there to travel. Rob, you you wrote a whole book about how Canada can protect itself from the erosion of American democracy. What would be one or two of the most important things you would suggest? 
Well, I think a couple of things that I suggested. One, evaluating why it is that this right-wing populism seems to be somewhat stronger in the U.S. than it is in Canada and thinking what it is that, that so far has protected Canada from that sort of development and then lean into what that distinctiveness is. I think there are a couple of areas. I think one has to do with the fact that Canada is a country that has successfully so far made multiculturalism work, made high immigration work, and I think it's a, it's incumbent on whichever party is in power in the next uh, after the next election to continue to make those policies work, I think especially by putting housing uh, first and foremost in terms of making sure that we have housing to keep up with population growth, so that housing is, is not simply another government file that right now it's reaching the level of, of emergency, not just on the level of, of quality of life and affordability, but in, able to show, in our ability to show that the model that we have of a high immigration country, of a country that is open, tolerant, multicultural, immigrant friendly, um, in the face of a country in the US that would be taking the opposite of these positions, that we can still show that policy works. And I think that means that it is more essential than ever to make it work in terms of housing. It's so yeah. interesting that you say that because we're, we, it feels like we're watching some of the consensus around uh, immigration start to, to fray in real time in terms of the political discussion right now and some of the immigration levels. Yeah, that's really worrisome to me. Um, I think the other thing I'd say is uh, on the foreign policy side, it is important simply for Canada to develop a, a more coherent foreign policy, to have an outlook on the world that doesn't simply assume uh, that Canada is going to be in the American shadow and Canada is going to be reliant on American defense provision and American leadership for finding its role in the world. Not only would that be less possible under a Trump presidency, I think we would really have to reevaluate how stable American leadership is going to be in general for the next generation to come. A lot to reflect on there. Thank you both so much for your time, your perspectives today. You're so welcome. Thanks so much. Laura Dawson is the executive director of the Future Borders Coalition. Rob Goodman is the author of Not Here, Why American Democracy is Eroding and How Canada Can Protect Itself. Still to come on the pod, we'll be talking about the politics around the government's immigration policies and why they've become such a challenge for Trudeau and his cabinet. I'm Catherine Cullen. You're listening to Canada's most popular political affairs program. A new episode of The House drops every Saturday. Let us know what you think about what you hear. Send us an email, thehouse at cbc.ca. This week, a lot of the country was plunged into cold temperatures. And in Alberta, that meant the electricity grid was stretched to its limits. People were asked to turn off lights and appliances to avoid rotating power outages. Provincial politicians in both Alberta and Saskatchewan used the weather to take a swing at renewable energy, arguing fossil fuels helped prevent a worst-case scenario. Here's Alberta's utilities minister, Nathan Newdorf. It wasn't ideological that the sun goes down at 4.55 before the peak. It wasn't ideological that the wind wasn't blowing or it was minus 30 and they couldn't turn. It was just a reality of a northern climate. So we need natural gas. But there is another energy option more provinces are considering nuclear. The CBC's Emma Godmere looks at whether the technological and political landscape surrounding nuclear energy could flip the switch. These days, nobody expects to hear the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition agree on anything. The ideologically driven MAGA conservative, hypocritical political grandstanding by a Prime Minister trying to destroy... But once they start talking about nuclear energy, they start to sound like this. Even a return to nuclear, which we're very, very, uh, very serious about and investing in the, some of the small modular reactors. Emissions-free energy by green-lighting green projects like zero-emitting small modular nuclear reactors. The fact that there's alignment on nuclear is one of the kind of best climate change stories there could be in this country because there's no alignment on other ones. <laughs> John Penner was deputy chief of staff to the natural resources minister in the last conservative government. He works with clients in the energy sector for the lobbying firm Strategy Corp. They've reached the same destination, but they got there from very different ways. The conservatives got there from, you know, their traditional support of nuclear combined with the need to show credibility on the environment where, you know, the liberals have this very split caucus and the politics of it are not very strong for the liberals, but they also need to come to a credible 2035 goal. To recap that goal, the federal government wants to move to a net zero electricity grid within the next 11 years. 
It's part of their larger push to hit net zero emissions across the board by 2050. There are only four active nuclear power plants in Canada right now, three in Ontario and one in New Brunswick. But they generate 15% of Canada's total electricity. The feds see nuclear as low emission energy worth backing. Just last month, the Liberals tripled down on nuclear, joining 21 other countries in a pledge to triple nuclear power by 2050. If we're serious about tackling climate change, if we're serious about decarbonizing our economy while still meeting the energy needs of families and, and businesses, we need all tools in the toolbox. I'm James Skoniak. I'm the uh, Executive Vice President and our Chief Development Officer at Bruce Power. We produce uh, approximately a third of Ontario's electricity from one of the largest operating nuclear facilities in the world. And nuclear power is an important tool in terms of providing clean, reliable, affordable electricity and uh, doing it in a way that does not contribute to, to, to climate change. Industry watchers say small modular reactors will be key. SMRs are often described as being faster and less expensive to build than traditional nuclear reactors. And there's a lot more familiarity with that because the government has been talking about it, people are talking about it, and the acceptance of small modular reactors has increased significantly. Margot Hurlbert is the Canada Research Chair in Climate Change, Energy and Sustainability Policy. For me, it's addressing climate change, right? Bringing our power production systems to be as close to net zero as we possibly can get them. And I think the past weekend has, again, displayed for the world how hard it is when we drop to minus 50 to keep the lights on and to keep the heaters running in our houses and all of the things that we depend on as Canadians. I think it's very interesting <laughs> that it's become a mantra, no path to net zero without nuclear. It suggests that we have no options. Professor and activist Susan O'Donnell works with the Coalition for Responsible Energy Development in New Brunswick. She joined several MPs on Parliament Hill last spring who urged the federal government to drop its support for nuclear energy projects. Of course there are paths to net zero without nuclear. I absolutely just see that that particular phrase is a promotional tool that seems to be very successful in convincing people that somehow they have to go with this or they're going to freeze. It's very hard right now to have alternative points of view come to the fore. We're not getting any information about the financial risks, about the environmental risks, about the health risks, so that Canadians can actually make an informed choice about the energy path moving forward. Environmental risks have been in the news recently, after a federal regulator approved the construction of a radioactive waste dump at Chalk River, northwest of Ottawa. We are absolutely not convinced that poisoning the environment and using the environment as a ways and means to treat radioactive waste is a good plan. Lance Raymond is chief of Kabawak First Nation, one of several Algonquin communities in the area opposing the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission's move. Now, this waste site isn't related to a nuclear power plant, but the opposition is an example of concerns many people have about nuclear. We are very fearful that, you know, in 10, 15, 20 years, Probably long after I'm gone, you know, this project will continue to pose a risk and a danger to my members and in general to all Canadians who use and depend on the Ottawa River as their drinking water source. Look, we have a byproduct that needs to be managed from our operation. I'm not going to sugarcoat that, but it's something we manage safely. We are the only form of electricity generation where by regulation we are required as we are operating to set money aside for the eventual decommissioning of our facilities and we safely, reliably and fund the long-term management of our waste now. James Skoniak of Bruce Power also says the industry is not expecting to take over the market. I think we do a real disservice to the energy debate when we make these decisions binary. It's not about nuclear and nothing else. It's about nuclear. It's about hydroelectric. It's about storage. It's about batteries. It's about renewables. And it's, it's about a component of clean natural gas as well. There is evidence public opinion is shifting on nuclear. Nanos research was asked by the government to conduct a survey last year. They found that the amount of people who think nuclear should be part of Canada's energy mix has increased, 
from 55% of Canadians five years ago to 70% of Canadians today. Former NDP National Director Brad Levine points out that shift includes some people on the left. You know, decades ago, for parties like the New Democrats and for progressive Canadians, nuclear was a non-starter. After accidents like Three Mile Island or Chernobyl, these are things that were in people's minds. A lot of time has passed. A lot of progressives are saying that maybe nuclear can play a role in the future energy mix, particularly when we see that technology within the nuclear uh, sector has drastically transformed. So why isn't that technology more widespread? There's two major challenges that they're going to have to overcome to build a much broader consensus for their technology. One is costs. Nuclear still is the most expensive form of electricity production. Uh, And two is proof of concept. We do have proven technology on things like nuclear submarines and in a naval capacity, but there hasn't been a civil application for the small modular reactors, uh, you know, as a definitive proof of concept just yet. James Skoniak argues that while it's expensive at first, nuclear can bring savings down the line. There is a, a an upfront capital requirement with nuclear power, but when we look at nuclear plants that have been, uh, that are operating here in Ontario today, even taking into account that capital, I mean, nuclear next to hydroelectric is one of the lowest cost forms of electricity in Ontario. Small modular reactors in Saskatchewan or Alberta are on the horizon. They're waiting to see that Ontario can build and achieve the first small modular reactor, perhaps the second. And not until that happens will Saskatchewan be entering into the shovel-ready pursuit of a small modular reactor. Indeed, no small modular reactors are fully designed, constructed, or up and running in Canada right now. Still, an Alberta power company announced just this week it's willing to build the province's first reactor by 2035. And as more projects eventually get underway, activist Susan O'Donnell believes the national conversation will intensify. I think, you know, if we see a shift from the support and subsidies that are going into fossil fuels, if we see a shift going into nuclear, I think that's when things are going to really heat up. And that's when the politicization of the nuclear issue is going to become very obvious. Once that money starts flowing, we're going to see a lot more interest of the Canadian public in this issue once they see that their tax money is going to be flowing at that level. There is no question that the conversation about Canada's energy mix is only going to get more intense as time goes on. Public participation in this policy discussion and in this complex problem of climate change, it's just crucial. Like, we're not going to sit back in our ivory tower or in our offices and make decisions uh, that, that will solve it. So even as a lot of politicians are charged up on nuclear, for the public at least, the debate will likely radiate for some time. For The House, I'm Emma Godmir. Quebec's premier is warning the province is almost at a breaking point. François Legault says Quebec can't handle the number of asylum seekers. Among his demands, find ways to curb the number of people claiming asylum and more federal money for support services. Toronto Mayor Olivia Chow can relate. I understand the breaking point piece because uh, we are doing our best Chow says if the federal government doesn't hand over $250 million to help house asylum seekers, she'll hike property taxes even further. To make sense of a growing tension around immigration policy, Stephanie Levitz is the deputy bureau chief at the Toronto Star. Laura Osman is a reporter with the Canadian Press and covers immigration. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So, Steph, why do you think Legault chose this moment to send that letter to the prime minister demanding help? Well, his letter comes after a tense week in relations between the city of Toronto and the federal Liberal government over the exact same question. And as we know, in politics, timing is everything. And if you can get the pressure building from not just one location, but several locations for the federal government to do something, it increases the likelihood that they, in fact, have to do something. And it comes at a difficult time for the Liberals, because with the polls being what they are for the party in Quebec, in Ontario, specifically in the GTA, they want to hold on to those seats. They want to keep those MPs from those regions 
in government. And so it's, it sets up a tension for the members of parliament on the ground who are saying, hey, boss, prime minister, if we don't do something about this, I could lose my seat. That means a lot to the government. Laura, Steph's pointing to the political opportunity in both of these cases. How legitimate, though, are the issues being raised here? Yeah, I mean, I think Stephanie's point is right. Politicians are going to politic. But Mm -hmm. I think that this is really a legitimate problem. And it's a very longstanding problem. Nothing about this issue with asylum seekers or really our immigration system at large is new. It's all longstanding. And we've heard calls from cities for help because a huge number of their homelessness population is people who've come here claiming asylum and they're having a hard time taking taking care of those folks. And those folks end up in sometimes exploitative situations. They're not receiving the kind of care that we would like and expect them to receive necessarily. And so it becomes more and more challenging for cities to deal with this increasing problem. And so when they say we're reaching a breaking point, they may not be wrong. This has been going on for a very long time, and it's coming at a huge cost uh, to cities and therefore to taxpayers. Steph, asylum seekers have a right to claim asylum. We saw the federal government try to address this problem when it closed Roxham Road. How much power does it have to do anything about the situation as it stands now? Uh, Francois Legault raised, I think, the crucial element of policy in his letter to the federal government where he picked up on the issue of visas. Because the reality is, with the closure of Roxham Road, which you know your listeners may recall was an irregular route to asylum for people, they were allowed to cross without any paperwork, any visas to come into Canada, they could claim asylum while they're here. Now what we're seeing is most folks are coming to this country on some kind of visa. That's what you need to get into Canada from numerous nations around the world. They have that visa, it's a student visa, visitor visa, whatever kind of visa. Once they get here, they they claim asylum. That is the one place where the federal government does have some room. They can start restricting the number of visas. And we can perhaps cast back, if you will, to the last conservative government. When faced with a similar issue of of mounting asylum claims coming from certain countries, they cracked down on visas from those countries and it effectively shut the door to a particular class or a particular sort of origin country for asylum seekers, and it did have some impact. So that is the one place. Mexico would be the biggest one. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was, you know, an irritant between Canada and Mexico. It, It caused some tensions. It was problematic. That visa ban was ultimately rescinded. But now Francois Legault is saying, hey, we're having this same problem again. So maybe that's a route the federal government can go down. Laura, part of what is um, sort of, I'll say, like intriguing to me politically here is, of course, the federal cabinet is headed to Montreal next week. They're going to be on Francois Legault's doorstep. You have to wonder the timing there. It's not exactly an accident. But to what extent does the political pressure here, does the federal government just sort of have to say yes, at least on the financial front to these governments? Well, I think what's really interesting is that all along this process, the federal government has been talking about this issue on the financial front. And it's not until now that we're starting to talk about it on the opposite side of things, on the on the flow of people coming into the country, and as Stephanie says, on the visa side. And that's because the government had this epiphany over the summer. It's like they were asleep in bed and bolted upright and thought, oh my God, there are so many people coming into this country, <laughs> you know? And so they really started to think about this in terms of, wow, we really have no control over the number of temporary visas that we're issuing here. And we hear them say over and over again, it's out of control. And now we hear the gov- other governments start to say, well, do something about it because it's affecting us in a myriad of ways. And so I think that now we're sort of past the point of talking about how do we continue to keep funneling money into these cities so that they can deal with this problem. The liberals are the ones who have broken the glass on that and said, actually, we may need to start thinking about the visa side. And I think that's going to solve a lot of the political problems that the government is sort of faced with at the moment if they start to talk about addressing that really complicated issue. Steph, I mean, it's not just asylum seekers. There is this sort of mounting conversation around things like temporary foreign workers, international students. Why is the conversation around immigration kind of exploding right now? Some of it is, is numbers, is raw data, right? And, it, and it's the reality of the intersection between immigration to this country and the housing crisis that we have in this country. And they are now running up against each other. And when you look at, okay, well, what are the root causes of our housing crisis? They are myriad. There's a lot of them. Some of it, not some of it, a lot of it is population growth. And mm-hmm. where can the federal government control, tweak, manage population growth? Immigration. The, the challenge, of course, is that that immigration, at least a significant portion of it, is also needed for our economic growth. And of course, uh, we do need some of these people to like 
keep the businesses functioning, provide health care. For instance, a lot of the people who are coming in are, are health care workers. Laura, what, what's your sense of what Steph was just talking about? Well, I think, you know, our, our population growth affects almost every facet of Canadian life, you know, from our cultural identity to our healthcare system to our housing availability. Every single part of this is impacted. And for a long time, I feel like the government was taking a very zoomed in look at the economic side of things. You know, we have jobs, we need to fill them. We didn't have sort of the whole picture. And now that we can see the whole picture, we can see how much trouble we're in. Steph, it's understandable that a lot of the scrutiny here is on the government. They set the policy. But for the Conservatives, how complicated is the issue of immigration? Oh, it's just so complicated. It's complicated because of the history of the last Conservative government and how they managed the file, both in terms of a policy agenda, what their priorities were for immigration. We talked a bit, you know, earlier about the visa situation, Mexico, things like that. And then the overarching politics of it and the, the stench that may continue to linger around the Conservative government for their responses, you know, to immigration while they were in office. And, you know, the most notable one, of course, being the case of Syrian refugees, right? And this idea at the time, massive Syrian refugee crisis and the Harper government of the era was perceived to be cold, out of touch, cruel, callous, a lot of bad words there. Mm. And some of the policies they tried to put to Canadians in the 2015 election that were seen as denigrating immigrants, um, promoting racism and xenophobia around newcomers, all that work has been said time and time again, really broke their relationship with communities that they had worked so hard to build. And they've spent a long time trying to build that relationship back. But everyone, it seems, is sort of on guard. Can we trust them? Do they mean what they say? And it, it becomes interesting because that's the problem, of course, facing conservative leader Pierre Polyev. There is not an insignificant grouping, I would say, in his base of support that is looking at these immigration questions not from an economic reality, a housing reality, an integration reality. They're sort of looking at it through a racial or xenophobic phobic reality and how he tamps that down and says that's not acceptable within my party because I think to him it's actually not acceptable. Mm -hmm. Uh, But how he manages that and then how he puts forward an immigration policy because if we start talking about needing to change the numbers, then you get into the word cut. You're going to cut which he like will not say, right? He he was pushed in one of his year-end interviews by Andrew Lawton. You set this new formula that the the immigration levels are going to have to match number of houses built and Andrew Lawton kept saying, well, surely you're talking about cutting. Surely you're talking about cutting. He won't go there. Laura, I I do think an interesting part of the calculation, the challenge, is that this iteration of the Conservative Party um, is going after voters for the People's Party of Canada. And they are more aggressive, I think we can clearly say, in uh, raising concerns <laughs> about immigration, <laughs> to put it mildly. So there is a bit of a, a balancing act that has to happen there in that they don't want to alienate those voters, though, as Steph has said, uh, Mr. Polyev himself has, you know, been ultimately very positive about the contributions of immigrants to Canada. And as he's pointed out many times, his own wife was an, was an immigrant to Canada. Well, as you both say, the Conservatives have been treading extremely carefully, even over the last several months as immigration has become a bigger topic. You know, as an immigration reporter trying to get the Conservatives to talk about the new immigration levels that were set was challenging. They don't want to talk about it. But I think what's really interesting is that it's the Liberals who opened the door to talking about immigration uh, in connection to housing. And all Pierre Polyev had to do now is walk through that door. He hasn't wanted to talk about immigration at all because it's such a difficult issue for his party. Suddenly the liberals are talking about it in these terms. That gives Pierre Polyev sort of the runway to start to talk about it in those terms as well. As we start to hear more criticism of our immigration system, certainly I think that taboo is going to lift a little bit. And we may start to hear some of the more xenophobic uh, arguments against immigration for sure. But this is an, a, a legitimate problem that we need to to reckon with as a country. And we need a, an opposition and we need in the next election to have a conversation about how we have to handle this. So for the Conservatives, I think that was a gift from the Liberals that they are now able to talk about this in terms of the economics, in terms of affordability, their own bread and butter issue, mm. which really, you know, is just a huge advantage for the Conservatives now. Before I let you guys go, Steph, I do just want to ask you, the Liberals are heading into that cabinet retreat. Do you think we're going to see new policy, new pronouncements coming from them around immigration? 
it seems to me it's a bit too early for new policy pronouncements at this regard because it, it would require a massive tinkering with sort of the socioeconomic fabric of the country to suddenly do something on immigration. But two things definitely seem to be in the offing sooner rather than later. One will be some response to Toronto in terms of, of finalizing a deal there to help. Two will be the start of a conversation about the international student piece in this country and how it could look different for the start of the next school year. Thank you both so much for this, Stephanie Levitz and Laura Osmond. Last week on the show, we talked to two business owners about paying back their pandemic loans to the federal government. Here's our senior producer, Jennifer Chevalier, with your emails. And Jennifer, what did listeners say about the SIBA loans? Well, we had a number of emails that weren't very sympathetic to the plight of small businesses. Bruce Johansson wrote, we can't fund losers. It'll destroy the economy. Just give the workers welfare checks because that's what funding bankrupt, non-viable businesses is, a burden on the taxpayer. And Gudrun Lays wrote, unprofitable small businesses should definitely not be kept going by gifts from the taxpayer. It's tough, but that's what it's like to be in business. Tough indeed. Uh, Did we hear from any business owners? Yes. Mark Yates wrote to say he'll probably pay back his SIBA loan by the deadline, but it'll leave him broke. He says the three-week extension in January to pay it back was an insult. He said it's like saying, hey, bud, you're going to die on Friday. Wait, we can keep you alive till Sunday. And then Michael Ostafichuk said he'd like to raise prices to cover his costs, but given people's reduced spending capacities right now, he can't. So he's in danger of going out of business. But on the other hand, business owner Kevin Dunsty said the woman we interviewed, who said running a small business felt like being in front of a firing squad, was being, quote, absolutely ridiculous. He thinks businesses were very well taken care of by the federal government. All very interesting. Some strong opinions there. Thank you for this, Jennifer. On both sides. Yeah, you're welcome. Before we go, former Alberta Premier Rachel Notley announced this week she'll be stepping down as NDP leader. She led her party to a historic victory in 2015, ending decades of conservative power in the province. But she's lost two elections since then. I spoke with her on Tuesday when I was hosting Power in Politics, and I asked if she would advise anyone now to run on a carbon tax. It was part of our conversation. I will say it was probably not my most successful uh, platform, <laughs> um, but I do believe, uh, and, and whether a carbon tax is ultimately the right way to confront climate change, I do believe that we need people who are prepared to stand up and say, we must take this problem seriously. We cannot keep kicking the can down the road. These problems are coming at us faster and faster and faster. And they are not solvable in a six-month legislative cycle. They're not solvable in a one-day media cycle. And they're often not solvable within a four-year electoral cycle. Yet it is our obligation as leaders to um, confront them with honesty and authenticity. And I feel that uh, we're, we're losing that right now in a lot of conversations across this country. Any chance we'll ever see you in federal politics in the future? Nope. <laughs> a very succinct uh, answer to end the interview. Thank you very much for your time today, Rachel Notley. Thank you very much. Take care. Okay, that's it for us this week. Our crew on the house is Kristen Everson, Emma Godmere, Christian Poslang, and our senior producer is Jennifer Chevalier. I'm Catherine Cullen. Thank you so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.